Welcome back to Book Club. Here we have episode two of Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI's Jesus of Nazareth, The Infancy Narratives. Thanks for joining us, and here we go. Hi, everyone. (laughs) We're on episode two of our book club, chapter two of Pope Benedict's The Infancy Narratives with Jesus of Nazareth. And in chapter two, um, it is titled The Annunciation of the Birth of John the Baptist and the Annunciation of the Birth of Jesus. So we'll be looking at both starting on page 14 in your books. Uh, Is there anything I was wondering? It's a longer chapter. Yeah. Is there anything that stood out to you thinking back on reading it that you thought was like most remarkable or most interesting or curious or that you remember the most? Oh, wow. That is quite a question. I have one. And so I was just curious if you had one. Okay. I kind of want to hear yours, but off like just right off the top of my head, the enunciation narratives um, were really striking to me to like really delve into that and specifically looking at our lady's reaction and this, the particular point of her pondering the angels, um, uh, news, her pondering, and then Ratzinger actually like, um, uh, defining the word ponder and what that looked like as an interior narrative that she had before she responded. I thought that was really striking. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. okay. But what about, yeah, you? no, that's, I mean, that's always a really What's the word that line from because that's only in the gospel of luke mm-hmm. and yeah that's a very i don't know heartwarming line or verse i guess mm-hmm. right i think it's one of the more obviously the gospels are very human but that's one of those extremely human moments i think in the gospel right where it's very warm and intimate I it think. is it also, to me, re- like reflected Our Lady's um, wisdom and her as a theologian because she pondered, she thought she had this interior conversation within herself and then came to this point of truth. Well, I trust God, not how, not like, can this happen? No way this could happen. You know, it wasn't that. It was, okay, how will this happen? It's just so... um to me, like also also shows her contemplative side matched with her wisdom and practical practical side, if that makes sense. Doesn't it? See, I should have gotten. You should have gotten the Bible out. Yeah, <laughs> I had it last week. And where is it? It's up there. It's just right on top of the bookshelf, up um, high. It's where it's with my far. prayer book. But okay. I think that line is after. That's that line is not at the beginning. No. Right? I mean, isn't that it's later on? I think it's after the visit of the shepherds. Isn't it? I think. Wait, what are you talking about? When when scripture relates that she ponders all things in her heart. Oh yeah, that's that's after he's born. Yeah. Yeah. So just yeah, that's yeah, like so she's sort of experienced all the events at that point, if you want to say it like that you know and then she's sort of thinking almost thinking back right and i think that's a very yeah that's really interesting because it's often from in hindsight that we can see a lot more clearly 
And so it would make sense that she would be pondering in that way in sort of looking back on everything that she's experienced and everything that's happened actually. Yes. So that's another point where she ponders, but Ratzinger remember in the enunciation narrative actually says that she, he uses the word that she pondered the angel's message. Sure. So, so it's, was very, it's like, more about was, it. Yeah. So we, yeah. we hear about it explicitly in scripture after the fact, but Ratzinger points out, well, essentially he says something to the effect of like, this would be, kind of her essential disposition yes to the mystery yes mm-hmm. and I, sure. I mean okay, we that see that yeah yes. it's just really okay. amazing okay anyway uh, so tell me tell me yours though I want to know I don't remember where it is in mm-hmm. a chapter that's my you don't have a page number yeah that's my <laughs> fatal flaw mm-hmm. right um yeah I can't remember I can't remember that but there's an image that he uses, and I think it's when he's talking about one of St. Bernard's yes. sermons. I remember this. And Bernard paints this really fantastic sort of mental image of the angel approaching Mary at, and announcing his news. Mm-hmm. And that Gabriel, along with the whole rest of the cosmos, essentially is sitting there with bated breath, waiting to see what she's going to say. So it's almost like the entire cosmos just Stop. holds its breath and waits to see what she does. And then Bernard, which is also really interesting, where he says, you know, it's, you know, Bernard says something to the effect of, this is the moment not to be humble, be daring, say yes. Mm. Where he almost kind of, it's almost like watching, I had this image in my head of, and I think this makes sense and I'll explain it. Mm-hmm. Right. If you if you were to see like a young couple like out in public somewhere in like a crowd mm-hmm. and s- seeing like this marriage proposal happen like in a crowd and everyone just kind of you just everyone would kind of stare mm-hmm. and just wait to see what she'll say. Mm, right. Like and then just someone standing up like St. Bernard standing up, you know, say yes, <laughs> you know. And so I think that that's the real image that he that he gives. And I think that that makes a lot of sense because a lot of the fathers, especially Augustine, will talk about the incarnation as the moment where heaven and earth are wed in the virgin's womb. And it's her consent to this marriage. Yes. Right. Consent makes marriage. Right. And so Mary's consent weds heaven and earth in her womb in that moment. And so Bernard, like Ratzinger and Bernard don't use the marital imagery, but I think that that makes Mm -hmm. a lot of sense with that sort of, you know, Gabriel proposes Mm -hmm. this reality to her. Mm -hmm. Everyone's waiting and she says yes. And then everything sort of quickly flows out of that. That's so powerful. So so that was my favorite little moment. Yeah. I think in the chat. Obviously the chapter is great and we'll talk about it. But that was the moment that kind of that made me stop reading. I yeah. Think, yeah. And think about like what he had actually written. Yeah. I'm curious what our listeners what struck out to all of you. So um definitely comment on this one. Like there's just so much to say in this chapter. Like let us know your thoughts. And and if you don't want to comment on Substack, then uh you know, DM us on Instagram. We want to hear your thoughts on this. Um, yeah, that's so, so interesting. So, so anyway, we can go from the, we can start. Yeah, from the, let's do it. Let's, let's start with John the Baptist. I mean, that's where it begins, right? 
So we're talking about like this parallel with John and the Lord is really amazing. And then also looking at my, I mean, I love thinking about the visitation. So when I think about our lady, like just right away running to go see Elizabeth and the joy that they have together. And then also this sort of like delight in what the Lord is doing in one another. I think for women, like this is just such an example of what we are meant to be to one another. I think it's such a powerful moment. So let's, but let's talk, let's talk about John the Baptist. So do you have thoughts on, um, sort of the birth of John the Baptist and the announcement to Zechariah. I do. I mean, I actually have a few thoughts before that. Okay. Let's to hear be it. Honest. Let's go. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's a spot in the opening chapter or two. It's on the third, it's on page 16. Ratzinger uses the phrase family traditions. And I thought that, that was just a really interesting mm-hmm. phrase, like at mm-hmm. Christmas time, especially mm-hmm. because obviously if the principal author of scripture is the Holy spirit, which we believe there's a certain sense in which one side of the coin is that the authors or sources of scripture don't ultimately matter in one sense mm-hmm. because the ultimate source is the Holy spirit. Right. Right. So if all kinds of anonymous authors are helping to put the Psalms together or something like that, like, great. It doesn't really matter who did that because it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Right. But at the same, but it that but on the other side, the flip side of the coin is that well, the human authors do really matter because the Bible didn't, you know, no one found it in a crater fallen from heaven or something, right? It's, right, right? it's a human document at the same time. It's very similar to the incarnation in that way. So the fact that Ooh, he points deep, out actually. and he and we remember wow. this idea that, well, I mean, Luke, like Luke the historian, right? He well, he would have had to get his information from somewhere. And there's a sense in which we get a lot of information that only Mary could have known mm-hmm. in Luke. Mm-hmm. And so it's to, to so to think about it as kind of like a family tradition or a family story that's passed down. You know, everyone has stories from, oh, well, you know, grandma told this one story about grandpa and and everybody remembers it a right. hundred years later, that kind of thing. Um, so I thought that that was really a good way of putting it, right? This, you know, Luke relating family traditions because it's passed down in both not just the historical holy family, but the family of the church as well. Right. And he quotes, um, Ratzinger quotes here, you know, his mother kept all these things in her heart and says only she could report the event of the Annunciation. Um, But also even just that phrase comes from a place of intimacy, you know, so how it was relayed was something very personal and deep, you know, um, And tradition, you know, in our Catholic faith, we know traditionally that St. Luke had spent a lot of time with Our Lady. And there are so many things that come with that, with like Our Lady of Chestahova being painted by him and like things like that. There's all these traditional stories about that. So, so that's, that's there, you know. I mean, mean? technically what Ratzinger says isn't true, right? What do you mean? Well, I mean, technically the Holy Spirit could simply have revealed what, you know, Mary thought or Gabriel said. So, so technically, right, via, you know, the gift of prophecy or something, Luke could have known without anyone telling him beyond divine inspiration. Sure. But it makes more sense to think, well, you know, it, it it's a lot simpler to simply imagine Luke talking to her, right? We see she's hanging out with the, you know, hanging out with the apostles in the upper room at Pentecost. And so she's clearly involved in the work of the early church. So it makes perfect sense 
to think the simplest explanation for what, how we know this stuff is that she told him or somebody else who told Luke, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's the simplest explanation on the same page. And this is totally outside of anything that we read here at all is at the bottom when he's what is what does he say he says sacred events are for early life could not be made public while she was still alive so the idea that there's things that happen in the story mm-hmm. right if we want to like like we want to use the word the story of what happens not to not that it's like a fairy tale right but the, the event the story the history that there's things that happen that aren't that happen in secret, like that happen to an individual or that are only revealed later on. So this idea that certain things happen sort of in secrecy or in silence, there's this passage in, I can't remember which of the letters it is, but in one of the letters of St. Ignatius of Antioch in probably like 105 to 107 AD. So like super, super early. Mm -hmm. He talks about, and uh, I really should have written down what letter it is. Anyway, the point is, in one of them, I'm sure you could Google it. Um, he talks about how there's three mysteries that happen in silence, right? And he, so he says, the she, he says Mary's virginity, mm-hmm. the birth of Christ, the nativity, mm-hmm. and the death of Christ happen. He he says that there are three mysteries wrought in the stillness or the silence of God. So these things that are just so sort of beyond normal human understanding, essentially, and also that happen beyond any knowledge that the devil may have had too. Mm -hmm. Right. So you see like in the temptation in the wilderness, right. He's the devil is attempting to discern and figure out who Jesus is. Right. Because he's he has a suspicion, but he's not a hundred percent sure. Yeah. Right. The the or the church fathers talk about the in, the the incarnation as like the fish as like a like a hook in bait, right? That Christ's divinity in his humanity is like a hook in bait mm-hmm. that like the devil thinks he can, you know, chomp down on human Jesus, not realizing, oh, this is not just another prophet or something right right and so the fact that her that two of them involve mary sort of specifically like her perpetual virginity and the nativity the birth of christ like we're talking about here in the infancy narratives that they happen in this deep dark silence or deep dark stillness of god is just really sort of a fascinating idea i completely agree and actually that that moves right into something that I noticed with this chapter and that I want to point out throughout as we go along is there, there are these words of what it looks like to be holy and to be Marian and Christ-like. And this is one of the words, hiddenness, hiddenness, like she is kept hidden. And actually I thought it was really interesting that none of these things could come out until after she died. Like he says that a couple different times, maybe two or three different times Mm -hmm. in this chapter. And I think that's, the Lord protecting her and hiding her and letting her have that, you know, union with him in her, her hiddenness. And it, it and it's going to be her, 
like you said, you know, she's telling certain people certain things, you know, her inner circle. Um, and then all of these things can come out after her assumption, you know, her death and assumption. And um yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting. So I want to point out the word hiddenness because I think there's a few other words in here that I can see are just a part of the spiritual life that we want to capture too. We want to Im- imitate. So one is hiddenness. Yeah, I think so. And then I think the the corresponding point is maybe more of a charismatic one in the sense of like the preaching. Mm-hmm. So he talks about how, well, it's not, you know, well, why didn't, why wasn't this part of the very earliest traditions or like, why isn't it in Mark or why isn't it in the apostolic preaching, things like that. Like, right. Why is this sort of, cause there's, there's the idea that, well, I mean, if this is, if this is sort of seen as a later tradition, then couldn't it have just been made up or added on mm-hmm. something like that. And, mm-hmm. and Ratzinger points out this really interesting reality that there is, even though everything in scripture is important and everything in Catholic teaching, you know, everything in the Christian message as a whole mm-hmm. is important, right? Mm-hmm. At the same time, there's a kind of hierarchy of truths in the sense that, you know, if if you were trying to boil it down, if you look at the, in the book of Acts, for, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. When the people are converted and they ask Peter, they're like, you know, okay, like, okay, we believe you. Like, what do we do? And Peter doesn't say, listen to me tell you about the infancy narratives Mm -hmm. you know he says well repent and be baptized Mm -hmm. and then he gives a basic summary of jesus's public life and passion and so there is a sense in which there is a hierarchy of truths even among every all the things that are important and true some things are more important right like we say well the book of leviticus or the book of numbers or second chronicles are all inspired scripture they're really important but the gospels are more important. Yes. Right. And so yes. there's certain there's certain mysteries of Christ's life, like the passion, <clears throat> that are more important. Right. So the passion narrative is more important than the infancy narrative. Yes. It doesn't mean that an infancy narrative is not important at all. Right. It simply means that, well, when when the apostles are preaching and those those first most important things, you're going to talk about the public ministry and the passion and the resurrection. Yes. So actually And just... those more secret hidden things can kind of you know, slowly surface yes. as time goes on to be added to the reality that just gives it more depth, I suppose. Absolutely. Yeah. And actually just like what I'm going to just sort of go on a short tangent on that and just bring this down home for a second um, for all the moms out there, because uh that's why I think with Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, like we say, like we don't start with the Old Testament with children. We actually go right to the Lord and say, Jesus is the good shepherd and he loves you because no matter what, it's like the child from the time, as soon as it is possible to introduce them to Jesus, we need to do that because that is, it is most important that they know Jesus and that Jesus loves them and that Jesus is there for them. So it's in the same way, but you know, as they grow, it's like, then we want them to know the old Testament stories as well. And we want them to know the lives of and heroism of the saints and all of these things. So it's, it's like you said, you want all of it, but there are certain points in salvation history that like are most important to know. Right. There's a certain kind of Christian pedagogy, right? If you're trying to go out and evangelize, you start with, 
you know, you don't really don't start with like the Exodus or, you know, the Davidic monarchy or something, right? If you're trying to evangelize, you usually start either and the gospels with Christ yeah, or another, you know, the only other spot maybe you would start with would be like Genesis and the fall. Like, why are we the way we are? Right. You know, those are kind of the only two spots you would start with. Why am I the way I am? (laughs) (laughs) That's the big question, right? I mean, that's, that's why Genesis is such a revelation, not to sort of totally change the topic, right? But if all the ancient philosophers are, well, this, you know, this is, you know, it's, it's best to live by what's highest in us. So why no, don't, why don't we ever do it? Yeah. Well, that's that's why. Anyway, that's a totally okay. Topic. And, all right, yeah. we're we're so okay. The we final thing before okay. All right, the go last go thing ahead. before John, we get yep. to John. Okay, we're gonna get to John the Baptist. Everyone is he <laughs> Benedict in two different spots at least. Maybe mm-hmm. he does it more. He talks about how the Old Testament doesn't make any sense without the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Now, not not totally. Not, not not to sit. Not you know. Not to be you know a Marcionite or anything. Not throw away the Old Testament. And say like this is bad. Not make sense. Not saying that at all. But he uses the words, um, he says that there are certain stray passages in the Old Testament. Okay. And he talks about, um, I think towards the end of the chapter, he he uses the phrase words in waiting. In the yes. sense that there are, there are certain Old Testament passages that were waiting for something or someone to make sense of them. Yes. Because there are, there's, m- most of the Old Testament makes sense on its own, not completely, not a hundred percent. Right. But you, you can read through the old Testament without constantly thinking of the literal historical fulfillment of everything. Now, obviously everything leads to Christ. That's the whole point, mm-hmm. but you can read Genesis and it, and the story makes sense. Or you can read other stories and things like that. And you can read the Psalms and, and the and Proverbs and everything. And they, they make sense on their own. That's part of why they were important for Israel, right? It's the old Testament isn't just for Christians, right? The Old Testament was written for Old Testament Israel first. Yes. And then for us at the end, which is what St. Paul talks about. He says, you know, Paul talks about how the Old Testament is written for us, right? It's not, so it's for, it's for both groups. So this idea that there are certain passages in the Old Testament there that only make sense when you view them from the reality of Christ is something that's really important to a Christian view of history and of scripture. Yeah. That there's these certain, he talks about Isaiah seven and and some other things, right. Where there might be some tension or some things that are confusing in the old Testament. You think, well, this, this doesn't make, you know, this, this old Testament passage by itself is really confusing or it doesn't make sense, or it might even seem contradictory. Mm-hmm. But then from the perspective of the New Testament, you can look back and think, oh, okay, now this all makes perfect sense. Yes. Right? It's finally been fulfilled. So not that it was contradictory to begin with. It was just a word in waiting, as he says, right? It's, it was waiting for a completion. Yeah. Okay. So that's all I have for the pre-Baptist okay. let's, material. Let's... Let's go to page 18. Let's talk about the Annunciation of the birth of John um, in brief. And then let's get to the Annunciation narratives, because I think that's the book. So, um, yeah, dive in. Yeah. So I'm actually going right to page 19. Um, I, I circled the just 
are those who inwardly live the ordinances of the law aright. Um, I was I was really struck by like the again, I, I think Ratzinger does a really good job at definitions. And it's like, what is just, right? So what is just? And um, what I could see here is it's this interior and exterior faithfulness um, that are in harmony with one another. So um, I thought that was really interesting looking at what is just. So that's just a quality. Again, I'm going to just point out those words because I think these are words to pray with. So, you know, hiddenness, just like what it means to be just, um, throughout the chapter. And there's a few other words I'll point out as well, but, um, let's talk about Zechariah and Elizabeth. So they, they find out they're going to have John the Baptist. So through Zechariah, um, did you have thoughts on that, Josh, on the enunciation of the birth of John? I think, I think the thing that stands out for me most is the presence of Gabriel mm. in the Annunciation narratives. And so Ratzinger points out that there's kind of two different approaches to thinking about John's Annunciation and John's person. So first he points out how there was an expectation in the first century based on a lot of Old Testament texts like Malachi uh, that somehow... God was going to send Elijah before the end of all things. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's why in the gospels, Jesus uh, talks about how he, he, he tells them after the transfiguration, he says, and if you can accept it, John came in the spirit of Elijah. Right? Mm-hmm. And so John sort of embodies this figure of Elijah, who, if you remember from first Kings, Elijah kind of appears out of nowhere. And, but he's this really charismatic, strange, powerful prophet who gets into a lot of arguments and he's a very kind of a divisive figure mm-hmm. and he is at odds with the monarchy all of these things that john does as well and then eventually he has this very sort of dramatic end again very similar to john the baptist and then the second thing is the presence of gabriel where the only place, the only other place we actually find Gabriel in the Old Testament is in the book of Daniel, when he comes to Daniel after he has all of these sort of apocalyptic dreams. Mm-hmm. And so Gabriel, if you're if you're a pious Jew in the first century, and Gabriel appears, the only place you kind of really know Gabriel is he's kind of the the harbinger of the apocalypse in that sense. Right? Mm-hmm. He, if Gabriel shows up sort of crazy end time things seem to follow. Wow. And so yeah. Gabriel shows up in this, you know, in the 21st century, think about the infancy narrative. So oh, sweet little nativity scene, right? Well, for a first century Jew to, for Gabriel to show up means that thing like history is about to change. Something really very dramatic is going to happen now. It's amazing. Yeah. And then you get two little babies, right? It's kind of sort of this paradox is really, is really curious. That's incredible. That's yeah, that's incredible to think about. I um, actually wrote down, I was really struck by on page 20 at the top of the page, it talks about how when Gabriel came and like where he was standing. So it says like the angel stands between the altar and the seven branched candlestick. And like it has all these details about like how the altar looked and there was incense going on and all of these things. 
And it just, to me, pointed to the liturgy. Um, and I was, I was specifically thinking about the Eastern liturgy, having, you know, gone to the Byzantine, right? Like so often and stuff like that. I was just like thinking about that, like all of, or, you know, the old mass and all these things, like how you have all those, um, that like how every movement and every placement matters and has symbolism behind it. And so this reminded me of that, like the significance of, you know, he's on the left, the North side of the altar stood the table with the, with the bread offerings, you know, like this is what Ratzinger is talking about. Well, there's an interesting Trinitarian sort of typology there. If you have an altar of incense and the seven branched candlestick and the, um, what would be like the, the the table for I guess it could be translated as the showbread or the bread of the presence. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you have these three kind of things, I mean, obviously the the bread of the presence that's obvious. Yep. And then the candlestick with the fire, that's obvious. Yes. The Holy Spirit. Yes. And then the altar of incense would sort of correspond to the right, worship of the Father. Yes. There's some really sort of curious. Old oh, Testament beautiful. liturgical Trinitarian foreshadowing. Yes. I mean, I don't know. To me, it just, it's one of these things where like everything does matter. Like all these details matter um, in how we worship. And that didn't change in the New Testament. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it yeah. matters how we worship. And I suppose going along with the liturgical notes, combined with what you were saying earlier about the the reality of of righteousness and justice that there's i mean holiness existed in israel right holiness is not a particularly christian phenomena in the sense that it's you only get grace or holiness in the christian church right Mm -hmm. i mean you, you wouldn't have figures in the old testament described as just or holy or blameless Mm-hmm. Like you get with, you know, what you know, Joseph or Job or all of these different figures, right? There's a real sense in which sometimes we attribute sanctity purely to Christian saints. But one of the things that the infancy narratives does really well is remind us that there are right these these people into which Christ is born, there are holy just people, right? Joseph is a just man. Yes. I you know, loved that whole Mary is field. holy. The Baptist is holy. Yes. Right. And so Christ is born, you know, not the, the people as a whole are not holy and nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. Right. The we as a people are, you know, flaw, you know, flawed and, <laughs> and and sinful. Yeah. Right. As individual people. But it it is really striking how almost every single individual name to the infancy narratives are described as very holy, just, righteous, sanctified people. Right. right. Mary, Joseph, the Baptist, Simeon, Anna, you know, mm-hmm. all of these people. And so it makes sense that you sort of, the holy one is born into the yeah. family of holiness. And I think it's worth like looking at their descriptions, like what were they like, because we want to imitate that. So, mm-hmm. um, so John came to infertile parents and they received this promise of a son. Um, and this is nothing new. Like there's, there are, there are a couple different stories in the old Testament that, are like this where it doesn't you know it doesn't make sense and then all of a sudden you know it's this miracle baby um that god gives and that's pretty amazing too with with john so i guess my question for you would be um 
why did it have to be that way? Like this, uh, you know, his parents suffered so much, you know, wanting a child and being in the priestly line and all of these things. And they wait and wait and wait. And then all of a sudden they're going to conceive John and Zechariah has doubts because they're so old. And I don't know, like in a way it's like, who can blame them? You know, like it's like, it's, you know, they've been trying all these years and you know what I mean? Well, Jesus, so what do you think about all that? Jesus gives the answer in the gospel of John. I wish I remembered what chapter it was. I want to say probably six or seven or eight, right? Mm-hmm. When they meet the man born blind, the apostles ask, like, who sinned, him or his parents? Mm. And Jesus says, well, n- nobody, but this was permitted so that the glory of God might be made manifest. And so there's a kind of literary trope in the sense that history rhymes in this case, where you have these a number of the patriarchs suffer childlessness for a great number of years, mm-hmm. only to have a child come as a kind of specific blessing. And mm-hmm. so the idea is always, well, this is a child of promise, right? This is clearly a work of God mm-hmm. and not just purely natural. Yeah. So this was, a, it's, it's a very clearly a gift in that sense and so it seems like Zechariah and elizabeth fit into this pattern of god working specifically in the lives of those closest to the center of salvation history in this particular way right yeah. abraham and sarah have to wait yeah elizabeth and zechariah have to wait okay and so someone is sent who plays a really important role later on yes so actually that's another word that is throughout this chapter is wait like waiting for everything to take place Mm -hmm. um there's so much waiting and for so so long and i think that's really hard for us specifically in this day and age because we are so used to getting what we want when we want it when we you know like amazon.com you know like it's gonna come tomorrow you know (laughs) Um, and <laughs> you're looked, like, I'm going to edit this out. I actually looked into uh, my Amazon grocery delivery today, but they don't deliver to our zip code. Oh man. Yeah. So, so we, we, you know, we get everything so quickly. And so this is particularly hard for us. And, um, but like waiting is totally a part of faith and growing in faith and growing in hope and surrendering also our lives um, (sighs) for like God's greater glory. Like if we see this, we see this in salvation history. We see this in the scriptures that there is so much waiting. (laughs) Um, And it's literally in that waiting. Like if we are faithful, because we also see so much unfaithfulness, you know, in the waiting too. And we can learn from that. If we can learn from that and be faithful in the waiting, I think this is really powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I was pondering, but. Um, yeah. Two more things on the Baptist. That, yes. That, let's was, do it. that I thought were really important. Before First, we get to Mary. John okay. begins to transform what Israel's priesthood looks like in his own person. Sometimes we forget that John was a priest. Mm-hmm. In the Old Testament, mm-hmm. if if your daddy's a priest, then you're a priest, <laughs> right? So yeah. Zechariah is clearly a priest. Yes. John would have been supposed to be 
a priest, right? That, right. That's what he would have been destined for. And the idea, well, Zechariah. So there's 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 two different kind of approaches to the temple in the first century. Mm-hmm. The temple had been destroyed a long time ago and it was starting to be rebuilt by Herod, but nobody liked Herod because he wasn't a real Davidic king. So nobody really took him seriously. Mm-hmm. He was trying to rebuild the temple. So you had the Jews in Israel, certain, you know, most of them just would say, okay, well, this is the temple. This is where we worship. This is where we practice. Great. But then there was this smaller group, the Essenes that lit, that decided, no, like we don't like Herod. We think that's all a bunch of rot. And we're going to go live out in the desert and kind of do our own thing. Mm -hmm. And we know a lot about them from the Dead Sea Scrolls and everything like that. And they lived a very interesting life. And we can talk a little bit about them later, maybe. But it seems like John may have been associated with this group because he's not in the temple. Mm -hmm. He's not doing normal priest stuff. Mm -hmm. He's dressed in animal skin and eating bugs and yelling at people in the desert. Right. Right. I mean, if something got, <laughs> like, it's been a while and we have to go back and watch it. Did the, the, we watched the first episode of The Chosen. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and the, the apostles like call him Creepy John. <laughs> if you yeah. And that was one of the funniest things that I like. I saw, I watch in that show and it, it really rings true. I mean, if you think about who this person was, yeah. calling him Creepy John is almost like two on the nose. Right. And, but, but the, but the point is, <laughs> he's starting to transform what Israel's priesthood looks like because he's a priest, but he's doing things that don't immediately seem very priestly. He's not offering any sacrifices, mm-hmm. but he's out in the desert sort of preaching a mission of repentance and baptism. And it's obviously something Christ endorses because he goes to be baptized by John. And so you see with, so John the Baptist is a real kind of hinge figure mm-hmm. between the old and new testaments and right before the new covenant. So things really, a whole lot of different things begin to shift with John the Baptist. Yeah. And it makes perfect sense, especially if you think, well, the the church celebrates three birthdays in its liturgical year. Yes. It's Christ. Yes. Obviously, Christmas. Right. We celebrate the birth of Mary. Yes. And we celebrate two different John the Baptist feast days. Yes. Right? Not just his martyrdom, we celebrate his birthday the advent essentially of john the baptist and so a lot of things change with john he's this he's the he's the hinge figure right and and you 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 realize why for most of christian history he was viewed as kind of the greatest saint male saint you know Mm -hmm. you know after obviously christ and and our lady right it was john the baptist so right in so much eastern iconography the Baptist is the most frequently depicted in religious artwork and even in the West, right? It's John the Baptist, right? And in the, in the last 200 years or so, there's been a bit, a bit of a shift with sort of our ideas about the sanctity of St. Joseph, perhaps. But regardless of that, right, it's the, the Baptist is such a looming figure. Yes. In the Gospels. Yes. That's why he's well worth discussing with the Annunciation to Mary. Yeah. In the same chapter. Yes. Mm-hmm. So so let's go to this. So we're going to look at the two infancy, infancy narratives um, next to each other. And I think the first thing we need to say is, so the angel Gabriel comes and he says, hail. And I think the other day, I can't remember what it was, but like we were reading something and and it said like, hail, hold of grace. And it was, it was like, oh yeah, like this is 
I don't know what it said, but it was like, oh, this is like a nice greeting. Oh, to sure. Me yeah. About, yeah. Uh-huh. Like, this is right. a nice greeting to hail me. Like, yeah. Hail uh-huh. Mary, you know. But but you were like, in hello. Right yes. There. Yeah. But you were like, no, no, no. In the Greek, <laughs> it means rejoice. Rejoice. Um, so this is huge. Yeah. So it is a greeting. It's not, yeah. not a greeting. You know, it's not like some sort of rude interruption or something. Sure. Right? It is a greeting. But it has very specific, especially for Luke, who is, if you if you look at the way Luke writes, he's very clearly imitating in many ways the way that the Greek Old Testament is written. Mm-hmm. So he's putting himself in the tradition of Greek Judaism, Greek Israel scripture. Mm-hmm. And so for Luke to use, to record this word, because presumably, I would imagine... You know, Our Lady hears Gabriel probably in Aramaic or native language, mm-hmm. right? So not Greek. So for Luke to record this in the Greek language as this particular word is very specific. You don't find it that often in the Old Testament. And it almost always exclusively means rejoice. Mm-hmm. And if I'm remembering correctly, actually, this is in one of the Marian videos on the on the website right I, I don't think it's ever used this way when an individual person is addressed it's almost always a kind of poetic use to a collective to the whole body of israel right rejoice daughter of zion which is sort of a, a poetic image of of the people of israel and so for and him to say Mary. it <laughs> but that's that's the yeah. point yeah it's used in the old testament to refer to the people of israel telling them to rejoice about God coming to them. Yes. And so for Gabriel to use this and say it to a historical individual is radically significant, right? It tells you not just about her, but it tells you about the whole thing that's about to happen, right? Right. Everything that had sort of been foreshadowed and spoken in figures and images and metaphors is now actual concrete reality. Yes. I think with this, just noting on this, so... Rejoice, daughter of Zion, shout Israel, the king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. I have on page 27. Um, Literally. Underlined. And it's, yeah, in it's your middle. Literal. It's in your and, middle parts. And, <laughs> but, but also, like, Mary is also the church, you know, like, and Mary is, like, she represents all of us in this. And even, like, and in the Old Testament and the New, like, this, the role of this woman is huge. She is the mother of the living. I mean, truly, like, she's capturing all of us in this. So, um, like, that's what I was thinking about is, like, this profound calling that this woman, this humble, hidden woman from a town that no one knew about in a very simple... Well, a few dozen people knew about Okay. It, some people knew about the town, but it wasn't like significant in salvation history yet, Nazareth. And it wasn't well known. And and she was hidden and she lived a modest life. And then, you know, and here she's called like it's the lowly is exalted. Right. Um, OK, so page 28. At this point. Literally, you know, that he is in your womb, like Christ is in your womb. This is what I have underlined at the top of the page, um, that this is the reason reason for Zion to rejoice, is that like Christ is in her womb. 
something I think a lot of people wonder is why Zechariah gets punished for what sounds like the same response <laughs> that Mary gives. But it's not the same. Right. Um, because they both ask questions. But, but it's, it's not the same. Right. I think so. I think <laughs> Well, I think that's what Ratzinger points out, right? Rat and so and so Zechariah questions Gabriel from a position of doubt. Mm-hmm. Whereas he points out how how Luke's narration clearly shows that Mary's question comes from a place of seeking understanding, mm-hmm. which is essentially right. It's just, um, you know, Anselm's definition of theology, right? Faith seeking understanding, right? This this idea. So so in essence, right? Um, you know, Zechariah's the skeptic, and Mary's doing theology, right? And when they, even though they're asking kind of the same question, it's mm-hmm. it's for different purposes, right? So she's not asking, she's not doubting or thinking, you know, how could that possibly? That's you know, that's that's impossible. It's more like, well, okay, how. How is that to take place? Enlighten me, please. Because that's, I mean, that's the angel's job. I mean, she would know, like being familiar with Israel's scriptures. The angel, when the angel appears and something mysterious has happened, it's the angel's job to enlighten the human who is there. And so mm-hmm. being familiar with that, you, you know, asking Gabriel, well, how? It's it's essentially a question about, well, illuminate, help illuminate me, right? Enlighten me mm-hmm. as to how this is actually to occur. Yes, yes. And um, he talks about, so um, on page 34 right now, so I actually had circle the word how, um, how is this promise to be fulfilled? And that's what she asks. Now, um, at the end of that page, I actually, so Ratzinger questions this and sort of leaves it as a mystery, but I actually agree with St. Augustine on this one in his explanation being that um, Mary had taken a vow of virginity and had entered into the betrothal simply in order to have a protector for her virginity. So I definitely agree with St. Augustine that like, that's what happened. Like I would, I would lean in that direction. Um, But, but Ratzinger leaves it as a question of, of like, and just says, it's a mystery. That's what he says. But did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So this is an interesting one. Um, I'm not sure I would ever want to say, I know a hundred percent what this response means. Well, of course, I don't think we can (laughs) know that, but it does seem like the evidence falls in favor of this hypothesis of Mary, assuming she's going to live a life without children. And this would be the reason she asks how. Right. You're, you're, she's not she's not a little girl and she's not five or six who doesn't know the bird, you know, she's not aware of the birds and the bees, right? She's a mature woman in the first century, right? Even if she's a teenager, mm-hmm. right? This is, you know, obviously a marriageable age if she's been married, you know, she's been betrothed to Joseph. And so something I don't think Ratzinger includes that would have and I'm, I'm sure he probably, you know, far be it for me to suggest that I know something that Joseph Ratzinger didn't. <laughs> um, but Oof. we do, we do see. And so I'm sure he'd have a, he'd have a reason why he wasn't sure about this particular evidence, but I, I might as well put it forward. Right. We, we do see even, we do see in the first century and even in scripture itself, that there is evidence of dedicated virginity. Or yeah. well, no, I mean, well, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah. I, my my brain just only associates that particular phrase with with Mary, right? But right. but yeah, obviously you could you know, live and die in, in that state, so yeah. yeah, technically, sure. But we do so historically. In I mentioned the Essenes earlier, this community of Jews who lived out in the desert, 
who wanted to live a life more devoted to sanctity and attempting to live in a kind of eschatological way. Mm -hmm. And so we see historical evidence that they would live lives of dedicated virginity and celibacy Mm -hmm. in order to devote their lives more fully to prayer and sort of divine service. And in and so and this isn't a case of dedicated virginity in the temple, I assume, but there is a case of dedicated celibacy in the temple that we read about right in Luke, because we read about Anna, right? Anna lives, if we're told Anna lives with her husband for a couple of years, and then her husband dies. And then the rest of her life for decades, right? 50, 60, 70 years, she just lives in the temple mm-hmm. by herself. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there there are examples in the first century of this becoming a more common way of living out Jewish piety, mm-hmm. because clearly from the beginning, right, what's the first command, right, to be fruitful and multiply, right? So which is why marriage and children are so honored in Israel's history and life. But as you get closer and closer to the date of the incarnation, Right. You'd see this phenomenon emerge, begin to emerge where you even see you see it in the wisdom literature that talks about it's better to be right childless and holy than to have a bunch of kids and not be holy. Yes. Right. And so you see this start to emerge in the wisdom literature and then you start to see it historically emerge in Israel's life as they begin to understand that there is this other mode of living a holy life. So. I mean, to, to to say that there's no precedent or something in Israel's life, I think is little, is not quite correct because you do see it historically, and a lot of the, a lot of the early church fathers and patristic writers offer up this hypothesis of Mary's dedicated virginity to the temple, and then her marriage to Joseph being a means of guarding this continued vow or promise. But what Ratzinger points out that we should remember is there is a lot that we don't know. Yes. Right. Yes. And so that it, but 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 that's okay, right? It's it's okay for there to be a lot we don't know. Yes. It's okay to have this kind of mystery about a lot of the details. If, yes. You know, if God wanted us to know, he he would have told Luke to write it down. I'm gonna sort of move along a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um. But there's I I did want to point this book out there's this quote that ratzinger says um he pulls from and it says how shall man pass into god unless god has first passed into man how is mankind to escape this birth into death unless he were born again through faith by the new birth from the virgin the sign of salvation that is god's wonderful and unmistakable gift and that was taken from our lady in the church by Rahner and what it's from it's from Irenaeus. oh it's so and then Rahner. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, he says, yeah, like he says that um Rahner talks about it, this same idea in the book, Our Lady in the Church. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to point out the this book, Our Lady in the Church, because if you're mm-hmm. looking for a book that really delves into this, I read this book start to finish while I was writing Little Blue Book. It's really short. It's it's short. It's not intimidating. And it's so good theologically. Like it's just it's power it's it's packed with stuff. So mm-hmm. um, I just wanted to point that out and recommend that book. Let's see. Moving along. Well, I'd recommend Irenaeus too, but that's a much more intimidating that book. That maybe, yeah. Maybe so yeah, go go read Hugo Rahner's book. That's that's a good point. Yes. That's a good recommendation. Um, 
Okay, so let's look at the conception and birth of Jesus according to Matthew. In this, I love that one more question. Yes, about the yes. let's do it. Um, is there a chance, and I'll probably think about this more in the next month or two as I'm prepping for next term's lectures on spirituality, but is there a sense in which he's talking about this, the moment between the Annunciation and sort of Joseph's revelation mm-hmm. where she's kind of in this weird state where Joseph's not sure about her? Is there a sense in which we would talk, call that like one of Mary's like dark nights of the soul? Ooh. So this moment where she's waiting for Christ's birth and then similarly a kind of dark night, you know, waiting for his passion. These sort of two links so where she's I like would, deeply you know, like in in crisis, right? Where she is sort of this in this existential state of things so, sort of beyond her control. I would say she undergone she's undergone many dark nights. However, they weren't purgative like they are for us. So like when we go through the dark night of the soul, it's because like our soul needs purgation, but like like it wasn't purgative for her. Like she just was in the same like, sense. I would I Yeah, so I I definitely agree with you. But there is a sense in which it could be purgative in the sense that it's a further elevation, in the same sense that the author of the letter to the Hebrews says that Christ can someone perfect be more like be made more perfect? Than yeah, perfect? yeah. Because even Christ is made. We we read it, the scripture tells us Christ is made perfect, and he learned obedience through suffering. No, and so even in Christ, it's, it's a submission of the human will to the divine will. Wow. Right. So not that it's a purgation in the sense it's getting rid of sin, right, or sinful attachments, right, but in the sense that it's a further deepening of their submission to god's will so i didn't think that like that so not a purgation yeah not not a purgation of sin but a further consecration i guess to i guess i'm just i I don't know what it's like to be perfect so it's yeah i mean can you grow more like that's a really interesting question that's really interesting yeah Yeah. you can become more perfect even if you are because if christ is if christ grows right luke tells us maybe you just act in that perfection like you just you know, because you're perfect, you're acting in that perfection, and it just, and it it's a greater glory well, upon here's a, you. Okay, for here's, that. here's like, a very the, obvious yeah, example. Okay, yeah. Was Mary perfect before saying yes to Gabriel? Yes. Is she more perfect for having said yes? I think the answer is yes. Right. She 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 increases her her submission. She increases her devotion. She increases. Or her... maybe we just see her perfection, though. You know. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously it's manifest to us, but if even Christ can learn obedience through what he suffers, yeah, even the most Okay, that's really interesting. I need to think about that for like three days now. Okay. It can increase in charity, (laughs) right? You can, you can get more charity in that sense. Wow. Not like being, not like, not like addition, like, oh, you get like, you you know, you, we added 17 charities to your, your, (laughs) right? But it's a kind of, it's, it's, you know, in, in Therese's language, it's increasing the size of the cup essentially by continuing to participate and continuing to say yes to what god asks okay well my mind was blown and now i'm going to be up all night thinking about this maybe on to joseph Joseph. yeah (laughs) i didn't have much sorry saint joseph i didn't have much on this i loved this okay so we're looking at mary i'm just bad dad i guess and then we're looking at joseph and his big thing is just okay so this is a word just right what? just he is a just man uh, 
Okay. Um, but here's Righteous, the definition. Maybe in some here, Bible translation. Yes, yes. Here is the definition because Ratzinger gives us the definition. Page 39 towards the end. Is a just man is one who maintains living contact with the word of God, who delights in the law of the Lord. And I loved that it put justice with joy in the law. So it's joy mixed in with justice, like justice to be just is not without joy. Because, you know, when you think about justice and being just, you kind of think of like this stern, like, or I do in my head, I think of like this stern person, like leaving the law and being disciplined and, you know, um, all of these things and self-discipline is extremely important and good and everything, but also we should be joyful. Like, and that's a gift of the Holy ghost. Well, sometimes and- it's hard for grownups to think that way. But I but right. think about ch- like we, you know, we experience it. We have a bunch of children, right? Yeah. Like the kids get the children get to a certain age and they want everything to be just. They want everything to be fair. Yes. Right. And I think seven, I'm, age I'm sure seven it was, is justice. <laughs> I'm sure it was Lewis or Chesterton or one of these, you know, sort of 20th century sort of Catholic or, you know, Christian English writers who talk about how, you know, he, yes, you know, you know, my kids, my kids like justice because they're innocent. And so it's mm. good for them. You know why adults don't like justice? Because we're wicked and sinful mm. and wrathful. And mm-hmm. we don't we don't like that. Mm-hmm. So the idea that justice and joy go together is not something foreign, right? It's it's like our perspective on it is foreign, right? We need to be purified in order to see that we need connection. To be childlike. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Become like children. Um the other thing with St. Joseph is he was discerning. So he did not have an angel come to him, but he did have the dream. And the thing that Ratzinger points out here is, you you know, he didn't just have a dream and just have a dream. And he discerned that this dream was from the Lord and that it was true. Um, and so it reminded me, and I just wrote here, here, discernment, you know, discernment of spirits is very important to pray for, especially when we are praying and when we are um, trying to be receptive to the Lord's will and his word in our life, we need to be very discerning um, as St. Joseph was. So this is another word to pray with is discernment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He also had a sensitivity for God and his ways. So praying for that sensitivity to, to acknowledge God and the, you know, um, the reality of heaven in our life and the the spiritual world around us, like I think is, is also really something, a gift to pray for, to be acknowledging of that. So Joseph was the son of David. So we see that this is a line um, coming from the Davidic line. This is very important. Um, Did you, so you said you didn't have much here. Well, the only things that, so I mean, it might be just because I was thinking, oh, this chapter is really long. I hope I don't have too much to say. So maybe it was more of a sort of phenomenological experience of reading and thinking, I don't want this podcast to be three hours long. Yeah, <laughs> I know. We probably should. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're we're getting close to the end. Yeah. Uh, so two things simply, the different reaction, the different things that the angel says to Mary versus Joseph remind you just how unique Gabriel's conversation with Mary is because just like everybody else... He tells Joseph, don't be afraid, right? Don't be scared, mm-hmm. right? N- nothing he, nothing Gabriel ever says to the Virgin, right? Mm-hmm. She, he doesn't need to tell her not to be afraid, which is interesting. Um, the other, the other thing is just how 
and this has been pointed out by you know every you know major christian thinker this is nothing original and, and ratzinger pointed out too the idea that joseph fits in as kind of the last in the long line of israelite patriarchs mm-hmm. right not only is his name joseph right think of the old testament joseph is right a a son of israel who has dreams that are very important for the future of the israelite people just like this joseph does uh, but he's just like you know joseph and abraham and the other israelite patriarchs and he is similar to abraham in a lot of ways not just because abraham is the father of isaac of whom who is a type of christ mm-hmm. right so we think about the relationship between abraham and isaac and the relationship between joseph and jesus is probably a fruitful one for like lexio divina or prayer that kind of thing but the way even Luke talks about how quickly Joseph acts on this dream and this divine message, right? Where he, you know, he's given this message by the angel and he just immediately goes and does it is very reminiscent of the way that we read in Genesis 22 about Abraham is told by God what to do with Isaac the next day. Mm-hmm. And we're told Abraham gets up early mm-hmm. to go do this. Mm-hmm. So it's not, oh, you know, he's kind of waffling and sort of waiting it out right no you know he gets this divine message and abraham gets up early to go fulfill it Mm -hmm. right and so this idea that they are these sort of just men defined by their faith in god who act immediately yes once they've discerned that god has said something that they must go do with their son yes that's exactly it he has this sort of spontaneity to him and we see this with going to egypt as well as he just does it he's obedient and that's like that's another another quality Mm -hmm. that we can look at. Um, Something else I had written down here, and it was a sort of tangent that Ratzinger went out on um, was on the story of the sick man, the paralytic who, who came to Christ. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely love this story. I just, I, I just love um, praying with this story and everything because he's showing how the Messiah's mission is it can come off disappointing because to the Jewish people, because they think like it's going to happen and manifest in this like really physical way. Like he's going to oh, be the king yeah, and, yeah, okay. you know, he's going to come in um, and just deliver them from all of their suffering and all of these things. We'll throw off the oppressor, right? Conquer right. Rome. Right, right, right. But, but it's this, it's a deeper thing going on and, and how Jesus comes and, with this man, he says, you know, the first thing he says is your sins are forgiven. And then he heals him of his physical needs and how like that is the priority is the soul is the priority. And I I think that this is so important is like understanding that like our holiness and our souls healing is priority. And sometimes we have to go through surgery quote-unquote spiritually to undergo that healing and then all this healing follows that um but but it's like in god's way and it's in a deeper way and some in a way that sometimes we don't understand um so i just love that that like he came to forgive us of our sins and to to cleanse our souls and and not not with disregard to our body right like um, but that this is what's most important that, that we're healed from our sins. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, it's why that's what he, he does first, right? The friends bring him 
if we're talking about this, you know, we're using this as as an example, Mm -hmm. the friends bring him presumably because they want him to be healed physically first, (laughs) right? And the first thing Jesus does, he does both. Yeah. But like Ratzinger's point is a really good one. It reminds us not to just sort of take our, you know, sort of Sunday school understanding of this that we have ingrained over however many years and decades of sort of Christian catechesis Yeah, that at first, like the friends may have been like, wait, that's not what we brought him. Right. You're supposed to make him all better. Right. And the point, of course, is, well, he did make him all better in the way that's most important. Mm -hmm. And then, as he says, right, to show you that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, I'll also heal him to sort of prove my point. Yes. And then he, so there's many ways in which Christ does bring immediate physical healing that is very obvious in ways that are very astounding, but that are always signs of a greater reality. Yes. Yeah. And I think I just, I wanted to point that out because I love that story mm-hmm. so much. Yeah. Um, that's a good one. Yeah. Okay. So let's move along. I was, so he talks about like the different pagan models um, of the story with, you know, Zeus and alchemy. Is that how you say his name? Donye and Perseus and Hercules, like all these, all these, basically these pagan gods and how like there were these different stories that like sort of alluded to like a a virgin, you know, giving birth or, or like a God coming into the world or like these different stories in pagan history. I love it. Yeah, like, I think we mentioned this last week. Yeah, we did. But the idea, the, the best place most people may have read about this kind of idea is in chesterton's the everlasting man Mm -hmm. where he points out and lewis does this too so like the inklings are kind of very on top of this topic you know lewis tolkien chesterton chesterton was one of the inklings but i sort of he's like a tangential honorary member i suppose (laughs) um but this idea that there's this natural desire for god and this natural openness to this sort of spiritual things in human nature because that's how we're made and so for modern skeptics to say, oh, well, look at these things that happened in the pagan myths and pagan philosophy and all these things before Christ. Look how some of them sort of reflect different shades of what the gospel story is. And don't you think that the gospel story is just another one of these myths that sort of, you know, begs and steals and borrows different aspects of of all these things? And Chesterton's point is, well, actually, no, it's this openness to the transcendent and openness to the spirit that allowed these pagan myths to see glimpses of the truth yes where when the reality occurred it would not be a total surprise but you would have seen it as a kind of not it's a kind of supernatural fulfillment to man's murky clouded expectation and hope right something like this could possibly happen and it's what Tolkien calls the you catastrophe, right? That no fairy tale would man ever desire more to be true than the, the than the story of the Gospels. Yes. It's incredible. Like when you just think about these things, it's incredible. And I, yeah, I, I think it's just well worth, you know, reading history for these purposes too. Yeah. Like, I think it's well worth knowing because it, it just makes God's storytelling all the more incredible. Um, yeah. Okay. Last thing, the, he notes the humility that Christ was made incarnate, you know, to a humble virgin who was obedient and lowly 
And in a spirit of humility, she said yes. And I think that these are also the words we need to pray with obedience and humility and lowliness, because that's what she was. And she received Christ and she bore him into the world. And this is what we are all meant to be, you know, like he says, who are my, who is my mother and my brothers? You know, it's those who do the word of God and, or, and keep it. What is it? Yeah. It's a great place to sort of finish today. Cause there's, there's a tradition in the church that there's three advents of Christ. Two of them are very, two of them you'll think of right off the bat, right? The first advent is the advent we're waiting for Christmas. Yes. Right. The second advent is his coming at the end of the world, right? His second coming, Mm -hmm. right? But the third coming, the third advent is his advent in each of our hearts. Yes. Right. And so this is why, right, Augustine talk, Augustine says, you know, obviously Mary is the mother of Christ for bearing him incarnate into the world. But Augustine reminds us, right, he, she bears him physically incarnate into the world because she first bore him in her heart. Yes. By faith, right. She's the first Christian. She's the first disciple of Christ, right? She's the first one to say yes to him. And so during Advent, right, that's kind of a, a good image for us as we wait for his Advent to attempt, right, to prepare our own hearts for his Advent, not just at Christmas, right, but the Advent that we, each and every one of us should have in our own hearts, right, by grace, by faith. And Jesus gave us this mother so that we can look to her and ask for her for her help with this um, and ask her to be our mother and to teach us to receive him into our hearts as she did. All right. Till next week. Till next week. Yeah. <laughs>